Would you please turn with me into the Gospel of Luke in chapter 9 this morning? Our desire is to see Jesus in the way he wants to be seen. Not in the way in which we want to see him or anybody else wants to show him to us or some book wants to encourage us with, but we want to see Jesus. One of the greatest things about the gift of the Word of God for us this morning is that we get to see Jesus through the eyes of the disciples, especially the gospel writers, but especially, by the way, through the Holy Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is the author of the Word of God, then we get to see, well, we get to see what he sees. And that's pretty exciting for us this morning, to understand that we, we are not missing out on anything. The Holy Spirit loves to fully reveal Jesus to us. That's what he has come to do. That's what Jesus had promised that he would do in John chapter 14. I must leave so he can come and tell you more about who I am, remind you of the things of who I am and what I have said. And so, so I wonder this morning what the attitude and the condition, the position of your heart is this morning. Are you willing to let Jesus reveal himself to you by the perfect means of his word of God? Are you willing to let the Spirit lead you into exaltation of Christ, to repentance and humility before him, of, of the things in which might not look much like him, but you long and strive to look more like Christ and be conformed to his image. Will you let Jesus reveal himself to you? Will you yield to the Spirit's teaching this morning? As we open up the scriptures this morning, let's turn to Luke chapter 9. And we will um, be reading there in just a moment. The title of the message this morning is Jesus, James Thunder. Jesus, James, thunder. Last week, we, we looked through the first of the apostles, the first of the disciples in the series, In Their Shoes. Uh, we looked at Peter, and we looked at Peter's rock, Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look at James, the son of thunder. We're going to look at who his thunder was. It's Jesus, Jesus, James's thunder. Many have come to believe that James and John were half-cousins to Jesus, that they were the sons of Mary Salome, who was the sister to Mary, half-cousins, we would call them, because we know that Jesus had a heavenly father. We tend to put that word half to remind us that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And James and John were the sons of Mary Salome and of Zebedee, who apparently had a well-established fishing company. We know them as fishermen. We never hear mention of James without his brother's name next to him. As we read through the Gospels, we never hear just James saying something. It's always James and John or going somewhere. When, their name, when James' name is used in the Gospel writings, it's always with his brother John. How many of you can identify with that, that maybe you're known as the sibling of your sibling? Oh, you're... Matt's brother, or so-and-so. Well, so it is, could be the story of James. For his brother wrote a book in our Bible. But yet his name is first, whenever it is listed. It's signifying at least an importance of role of leadership. 
just because he never wrote a book of the Bible does not mean that he was no less a leader. In a matter of fact, if there was some sort of hierarchical leadership in the listings given to us throughout the Gospels, we find Peter being a very strong leader and really the top of the list all the time, every time the the, 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 um, disciples are listed. Then James is second, so he's a very significant leader of the disciples. But we never hear of his name apart from being associated with John. And often we don't even hear John's name by itself except in reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. So when we hear John's name, sometimes we don't even hear his name. We just hear James and John, so they both almost have the same type of story. We're reminded in John chapter 16 when Jesus was hanging on the cross and John was charged to care for Mary, his mother. Salome, who was a devoted follower and no doubt very godly, we find her in Mark 15, coming to the tomb. She finds empty, of course, to anoint the body of Jesus. Then in Mark 16, the very next chapter, as Mark tells the story as it unfolds, we find that Mary Salome, this is James and John's mother, we find her rushing back to the upper room to tell the the disciples the angel and the empty tomb and all the story. So we find James, John's mother, a very significant role, a very godly woman and very excited about what is starting to unfold before her eyes. Well, the name James, the name James, is a derivative of the Hebrew name Jacob, of all things. We don't tend to even think the two would be related, but it it became a a common derivative. and, And so you're essentially naming your son Israel when you name them James. Is anybody in here named James? I think there's one, actually, one named James. There's another middle name, James, in here. So we have this name, James. It, it really harkens back to this Old Testament name for, for God's people, for Jacob. And so every time that they're naming their child this, they're reminding themselves and their family of the, the faithfulness of God who established a covenant with, with these people. What a wonderful name, if you bear that name. You join in a very long heritage of James's and Jacob himself. And James is that derivative. But James and John were called to be disciples almost immediately in the telling of Jesus' public ministry. They followed him all throughout his journeys into very privileged moments of, of revelation, including the transfiguration of Peter, James, and John saw a manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ and heard the voice of the Father commending his Son. There they were. We find them in the prayer meeting in Gethsemane just hours before the crucifixion. And we even find John at the empty tomb. But we know them to be, James and John, to be what were called the sons of thunder. And Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 17, introduces them to us as sons of thunder. What an awesome name. Wouldn't you love to be a football player with that kind of name? There's some awesome names for football players out there. I can't think of any right now, but there's some awesome names, you know, where you don't want to mess with that guy. It's Bowser or something like that. You know, I think that was one I came across yesterday. Bowser. That, that's awesome. I would not want to be across staring eye to eye with a guy named Bowser. So it is these sons of thunder. They were strong and powerful personalities, sons of thunder. 
And they actually seem to live up to that name, we believe. And the connotation of it really hasn't been lost since those ancient days. It really does mean that full of power and force and a big personality. Perhaps it was that you knew when James and John were to enter the room. You know people like that? All of a sudden they've entered the room and everybody knows they're there. Almost like the Kool-Aid man bursting through the wall. That's James and John for you, the sons of thunder. Well, not long after the Apostle Paul had partnered with Barnabas, and when Peter also was fully into his ministry in the book of Acts, to the world of unbelieving Jews, they, the unbelieving Jews were hot against the Christian witness, the evangel. Regional governors, kings, hungry for political power and favor among the people. They didn't want to stir up the Roman emperor against them, and they would do whatever it took to appease the agitated Jewish colonies. Herod Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great, who was that murderous and genocidal king who sought the babe Jesus after the wise men came to his throne. Herod Agrippa, now in the middle of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, is a regional governor, like his grandfather had been, and seems to have some of the same blood of unbelief and and bloodlust running through his veins. We're told in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Don't you hear the word picture there? Certainly it would have been his soldiers that were doing this, but they are enforced. They are, they are empowered by this hatred, this fuming hatred from Herod Agrippa. It is as if he himself is holding the swords and pulling the ropes on the guillotines. That's the power and force that Luke tells us about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Verse 2, he killed James, the brother of John. Again, he doesn't get away from his brother there. He, came, he, he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And we find out then in verse number three that he had laid his hands upon Peter and chained him to some soldiers. And as Acts 12 reads on, Peter is, is in a prison. Unfortunately, James didn't make it that far. And an angel will come and, and free James from the prison guard. And, and Peter will run to a house where faithful believers are praying for his release. And you remember the story. He rattles the gates and Rhoda, the servant girl, comes to the gates of the courtyard and she sees Peter And she's thinking, we're praying for Peter to get out of prison. And she sees him and she doesn't unlock the gate. And she goes back to the people who are praying and she tries to interrupt them. And they say, no, listen, we're praying that Peter will be released. Remember the story. James was already in the presence of the risen Lord. But notice that of all the leaders going in the church of Christ in the middle of the book of Acts, that James, although he doesn't have a book written to him, and although he doesn't get his name ever mentioned really without his brother's name next to him, notice that he is, he is a passionate and dynamic leader of the church who, when Herod Agrippa says, how can we stop Christianity from spreading? He says, number one, let's kill Peter, and secondly, let's kill James, this son of thunder. But 
how did James get to, from a fishing boat to the sword in Agrippa's palace? Well, this morning we're going to look at two scenarios of the lessons in which, in which Jesus was teaching. And listen, our, our greater question is not how did he make that journey? But our greater question is, who is this Jesus that can change a a James into being a son of thunder who wants to rain down fire on unbelievers to a man who will preach the gospel of mercy so effectively his name would be next to Peter? Who is this Jesus? And let me also say then to you this morning, who is this Jesus in that he is able to make you into someone who is able to dynamically witness the power of Jesus Christ in their lives and share it to others? Would you pray with me as we launch into this sermon together? Well, Heavenly Father, may the words of the word here in front of us sound like the rumblings of thunder as they shake us from our apathy. As, they, as the word shakes us from, from ignorance and, and awakens us unto life in Christ, unto truth and under the, under the thunderous sound of words of hope, of pleas of mercy, of offers and invitations of mercy, Oh, Father, awaken our hearts this morning to receive the mercy that you have for us, that we would not live life for ourselves and seek to sit on a throne. Father, make us into people like James and Peter. Let Jesus be our rock. Let Jesus be our thunder and the sound of mercy. We pray in his name. Amen. Have you ever heard of the expression, he stole my thunder? Has that ever happened to you? Maybe you were about ready to tell a story and someone else kind of jumps in and tells the rest of the story and you kind of feel like, hey, they just stole my thunder. It's an expression actually that hails back from from the 1700s where there was this this scriptwriter for these plays and he wasn't really hitting it off real well. He unfortunately happened to to live in the, in the time of William Shakespeare. And so he was writing these plays, but nobody was coming to them, and he even figured out a, a way to make a play really dynamic, and that is to, to create a, a little bit of a, a sound machine to make the sound of thunder, hoping to just create a, a little bit of a dynamic, what do they call it, like 5D or something now in theaters? He was thinking of it then. Well, it never really hit off, and nobody ever came to his plays. But not too long after he kind of gave up the, the show business, he was sitting in a, a, an a, a, the, uh, the show of, of Macbeth, Shakespeare's play. And there he heard the sound of the thunder machine. And afterwards, he gave the, the stage crew a what for. In fact, there's... There's a very descriptive statement that he, that he made that even blasphemes the name of God. He was so angry that they had stolen his idea and his invention and taken it to Shakespeare's 
stage. But in essence, he said, you stole my thunder. Well, this morning, I'd like for us to look at the sounds of the thunder of mercy and two truths that ought to be reckoned unto the heart of the disciple this morning. When we look at the lives of James and John, specifically James, how did he come to be someone who was a son of thunder to someone who would understand what mercy was about? And so that's why we're in, in Luke chapter 9. And so this morning, the first truth of our teaching today is that mercy for the disciple, it affects the attitude and the outlook of the disciple. So since you're in chapter 9, look in verse 43 with me, will you please? Jesus had just been casting out demons, and, and but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him on his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. But when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of Samaria to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I want you to see, as we get into this lesson on that mercy affects the attitude and outlook of the disciples, this is exactly what is not affecting the attitude and outlook of the disciples, but especially James and John. And I think what's revealed in here is that you and I have a problem of mercy. We have a problem with mercy. We have a, a really bad problem with mercy. It's, it's almost unthinkable to say, and we almost maybe even feel offended that, that I would say that the scripture would point it out. But I want us to look at what's going on here in this text and see if we can identify as a growing disciples in the Lord. If sometimes, sometimes, maybe if you'll see this, that we might struggle too in understanding and receiving mercy. First of all, it is not ever truly understood until there is a humble reckoning of the cross work of Christ. The reason why James and John and those around them were, were not understanding why it wouldn't be that Jesus would just call down judgment from heaven upon these Samaritans who are not hospitable is because it was still before the cross. They still did not understand that what would need to take place for this supreme demonstration of mercy was that Jesus would have to become the mercy bearer, the cross bearer. Listen, you and I cannot fully understand what mercy is until we humble ourselves at the cross. 
This is why it's so offensive to us that we would, we would hear that maybe we have a problem with mercy. It's because maybe we haven't been to the cross lately. Our Christianity has become crossless. But the second problem that we have with mercy is, is it is not fully felt at any particular moment, but it is fully applied nonetheless. No doubt even in the eruption of your singing this morning, you, you probably felt like the words were great, but you wish you had more. Or maybe your energy was full, but you wish you had more. You wish you had more capacity to, to sing out in praise and thankfulness to God for what he has done for you. Perhaps you're moved, but you wanted to be moved even more. And that is that experience of mercy. And that is that it may never be fully felt, but that doesn't mean it is not fully applied. So the extent of which your feelings of, of satisfaction and of recognition of mercy, God has infinitely applied mercy far beyond what you can comprehend and even feel in the human experience. Because it is a God thing. It is an infinite thing poured out on finite people. But this, this feeling that there's more that we want to respond to about this mercy, it motivates us into the insatiable desire for worship, thanksgiving, and praise. No doubt one of the motivations for a worshiping disciple is to gather with the people to help make his worship bigger, his expression of worship bigger, to make his thanksgiving and praise bigger, to sort of fill up the cup that we want to lift up to the Lord. There's a insatiable desire to return to God praise and thanksgiving for this limitless mercy that's being experienced on a moment-by-moment basis in the disciple's life. We, f- we feel full of mercy, and yet we feel like there's more to be had. We just never get over it. But the third problem of mercy is that it is something that we often want for ourselves, but as demonstrated in this passage, but we don't want it for others who actually are a lot like us. We tend to underestimate our guilt. And we overestimate others. Now here we have Jesus. He's coming from his Galilean ministry in the north part of Israel. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. That's the, that's the words that John uses. And that's the words that Matthew uses in his gospel. He has set his face. And it really is a, a, a literal picture that he is looking south. Even if you want to even think of it uh, figuratively downward to the cross even though it's upward to Jerusalem. And he is setting his face towards the cross, and he is going to go through Samaria. To go around Samaria is very inconvenient. It it really is a direct line from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria. Jesus doesn't want to skip Samaria. He's already been there. He doesn't want to skip Samaria because there's sinners in Samaria. But the disciples would gladly skip this village, this area of what they would call half-breeds and non-worshippers, non-true worshippers of Jehovah. And truly, they were not. But what James and John were hearing from Christ in his rebuke is, you're no better than the Samaritans. And it is for you that I go to the cross. 
Uh, sometimes we get so cleaned up in our Christianity that we almost tend to think that we, we don't, might not form it in a matter of words, but it certainly comes out in our attitude and behavior. And that is that, 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 that maybe we've gotten over our need for the cross. Our need for the fresh look of what it costs for our salvation and the depths of our sinfulness. And it's everybody else that needs the cross. It's the one who, who's a drunkard. It's the one who's an addict. It's the one who's, you know, all these political things, all these things. Whatever, whoever's different from you certainly needs the cross. And maybe now that you have it, you're a little bit over it. Jesus must go through Samaria to teach James and John that the cross will be for both. It'll be for sinners, and it'll be for sinners. It'll be for cleaned up sinners, like James and John, and it'll be for heathen sinners, like the Samaritans. But he'll still head to the cross. But we learn from this that mercy presupposes that one, that there is someone who is the author, that is the giver, and someone who is the recipient. You see, the disciples had come to believe that, that we, they said, would you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven? Now, think about how ostentatious this is. They're standing next to the second person of the Trinity and saying, uh, do you want us to ask the Father for you? And I think what has happened in their hearts is a couple of assumptions, and that is that even though we are kingdom citizens, we have not usurped the throne of God to measure out his judgments on his mercy. Our judgmental and our critical spirits betray us so often, revealing to us and to God and sometimes to others by means of the language and attitude that we have, that we have now deposed God and set ourselves on the throne, and this person is not going to receive mercy. But secondly, they had mistaken their position in mercy that they were recipients of mercy before they were mediators of mercy. They had mistaken their position. They had forgotten that they were themselves in need of mercy. And then it would be the mercy that they had come by, that they had received by God, that then God would require for them to mediate out. Thirdly, they would need to learn to be continued recipients of God's mercy before they would be mediators of it. Listen, we, we, need to, we need to take a shower in God's mercy every morning. If we wake up children of God and stroll around the day with a swagger as if we've gotten over mercy... The children of God who awake in the morning and think, well, we received it yesterday and that's fine enough. But oh, listen, it's no wonder that our lives demonstrate mercilessness towards others when we are not appropriating or recognizing the mercy that we are in so desperate a need of every single day. That's why God makes it new every morning. 
Why does he make mercy new every morning? Have you ever thought of that? Because it got old to you. Fourthly, the disciple whose heart is harsh towards unbelievers needs to be reminded of where his mercy came from. The disciple whose heart is harsh towards unbelievers needs to be reminded of where his mercy came from. Can I say to you, in the context of where we're living in America today, in Ohio, in Westerville, let your heart be coached by God's mercy towards our society. I know you want to yell at the TV screen. I know you want to honk your horn to drown out people on the side of the road holding signs. I know the thoughts, uh, if they're similar to mine in my sinful heart towards people who believe differently than me, and certainly even in a godless way. And we want to say to Jesus, would you just rain down fire on them? Listen, listen, folks. Apparently, he's not raining down fire on them. Let us be rebuked too. We need to be reminded where mercy came from. We're no different except for the mercy of Jesus Christ. You haven't attained whatever you think you've attained in your walk with Christ by means of your own goodness. It was mercy all the way. The second part of the attitude of mercy is that the disciples were denying is that they had come to believe that unbelievers need to be consumed by fire. This ties into what we were just saying. Listen, Christ's heart for Samaria had already been display in numerous occasions, but none greater than his forgiving grace for the woman at the well. They had already seen his spirit, his attitude towards Samaria. But now Jesus desired to pass through Samaria on his way to the cross for the reason that these would be the people and they would be among the first to receive his merciful salvation. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for Samaritans. Jesus died on the cross for Republicans and Democrats, and communists, and socialists, and Marxists, and every ist there is, because no ist makes it to heaven. All of us are in a society of Samaria. The Samaritans were wrong in their worship, they were wrong in their theology, and especially their Christology, but that would only qualify them to be a mission field. Listen, the wrongness, if you want to use a word even in say the wokeness of our society does not, does not disqualify them from the opportunity to hear of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. In fact, it qualifies them. It's how we know who still needs to hear about Jesus. If things in this world sicken you, if people's lifestyles, people's speech, if their positions, whatever, sicken you, 
Let it be an alarm. That person needs Jesus. That place is the mission field. It isn't a scorched earth. The third thing the disciples had come to believe, that Christ had come to judge the world. And that Christ reminded them that he had come to save the world. Listen as Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter 13, John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to what? Condemn the world. Who are you? Who am I? who stand in condemnation of this world. When even Jesus comes into this world as the righteous, holy one, pure and blameless, and even the crucified one by this very same world he created. And he did not come into this world to, the, to condemn the world, but that the world through him, not by proxy, might be what? So then the world through us at least through the telling of the evangel, that the world through us might be saved too then. Oh, that Samaria would come to Christ. Mercy is the means of salvation. But secondly, the second lesson of mercy for the disciple is that mercy paves the path of the disciple's walk. It's in every step, in every moment of our walk. And so, firstly, we saw that James had a wrong view of, of Jesus, and that's because he didn't understand mercy. But secondly, mercy, then, it is even the pathway for how the disciples walk. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, please. In Matthew 20, verse 17. In Matthew 20, 17, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. And he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee. By the way, Mark 10 says they came themselves. It's likely that all three of them came together. James, John, Mary, Salome. It came to him with her sons and kneeling before him, verse 20, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. It shall not be among you, but whoever would be the greatest among you, let him be your servant. And whoever will be the first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus goes on to heal blind men who saw who Jesus was, yet these disciples were blind themselves. The blind men had more sight than the disciples who could see. And so we learn that a disciple cannot go farther than where Jesus Christ has already gone. Do you know that Christ has already gone down the disciples' road to its very end? Jesus has already gone down your road. A suffering friend. Misunderstood. Relative, sibling, father, mother, daughter, son. Jesus has already gone down the road that you've gone down. And we read that this morning in our corporate reading in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand before the throne of God. Jesus has already endured through everything that you are enduring. And not only that, not only can he say he knows what it's like, but listen, One of the greatest assurances of reconciliation with God is that God isn't just for us and that is God is with us. So Jesus coming out of the grave guarantees his imminent, his personal presence of mercy in our lives. Every step that Christ stepped on this earth was for the pursuit of mercy for us. The writer of Hebrews had written earlier in Hebrews 5, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Listen, every part of Jesus' walk on this earth was a step in the direction of mercy for you. And every step that he walked, he won the mercy of God for you. Every step of Jesus became reckoned to our account as righteousness by the mercy of God. So his steps literally here in Samaria, his steps of righteousness, his steps of mercy are reckoned unto us. But the disciple will never stray outside the mercy of Christ. The psalmist reminds us, surely goodness and what? Mercy. Shall follow me all the days of my life. I know that on Wednesday at one o'clock, it doesn't feel much like mercy. There are times when we may not feel mercy, but that does not mean it has not been appropriate. Remember that truth from earlier this morning? We've been fully positioned in mercy, even if we don't feel the extent of it. 
So the disciple never stray outside the mercy of Christ. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. What do those days look like in Psalm 23? Well, sometimes those days look like the pleasant pastures and the still waters, right? Sometimes those mercy, those times of mercy will, will need to be in the valley of the shadow of death where there's fear. Lamentations 3.22, your mercies are made new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Who's the one that makes mercy for you? You or God? Praise God, you don't have to wake up and make mercy. (laughs) We could barely make coffee, right? Through our blurried eyes. We could barely make our bed. We could barely make good plans for the day and follow through. But he's the one who makes the mercies new. This is the guarantee. It's not something that you promised to God. It's something he's promised to you. His mercies are made new. He's the one who makes them. And then he gives them to you, whether you reckon them or not to yourself. And so even in your disobedience, even in your sleepiness, even in your ignorance, these mercies are given to you even every day. Then then lastly in this, there is a throne that Jesus was aiming to occupy. Now the disciples and their mom, these two disciples and their mom, kind of wanted a throne where you could call fire down from heaven at whatever whim you wanted. Listen, we would make horrible gods. We, sometimes we think we can be God's counselor. And we answer the question, who can be God's counselor? We're like, I can. We would make horrible gods. Because we would have no mercy. But there's a throne that Jesus is aiming to occupy as he marches through Samaria towards Jerusalem. And it's called the throne of grace. You say, Pastor Drury, we're talking about mercy here. Why are you going to throw grace in here? Because Hebrews chapter 4 actually leads us on that. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Why? That we may receive what? Mercy, mercy flows from the throne of grace. We could boldly come to God and say, I need both. And I, I can't make them. And I'm undeserving. And I think everybody else needs fire. And I didn't obey you yesterday. And I know nothing I have no grounds before you this morning to beg for your grace and mercy, but the blood of Jesus Christ, which I'm wholly undeserving of, wholly unworthy of. But Lord, I say to you, I need your mercy. I need the new version today. I can come before your throne of grace boldly because I know how desperately I need mercy. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy mercy and find grace to help in time of need notice it is called the throne of grace and it is there that we receive mercy 
If Jesus sits on a throne of grace, dispensing mercy, then from what kind of throne do we dispense judgment? That's what James will hear from Jesus. You will sit on a throne. But it will be a throne of mercy. The disciple of Christ should not desire any other throne than the throne of grace, whereby he receives mercy and finds grace in his needy condition. Listen, mercy is the crown that Jesus wore on the cross, and it is the throne. Mercy is best displayed on a tree. One of my favorite songs, and one that fired me up this morning as I prepared my heart for worship, is called Mercy Tree. It's a big song. I don't know we'll ever be able to sing it here just because of how the dynamics are. I'm sure Nathan could pull it off if anybody can. Maybe we'll sing it someday. But it sounds like this. On a hill called Calvary stands an endless mercy tree. Every broken, weary soul Find your rest and be made whole. Stripes of blood that stain its frame, shed to wash away our shame. From the scars, pure love released, salvation by the mercy tree. In the sky between two thieves hung the blameless Prince of Peace, bruised and battered, scarred and scorned, sacred head pierced by our thorns, It is finished, was his cry. The perfect lamb was crucified. His sacrifice, our victory. Our Savior chose the mercy tree. Hope went dark that violent day. The whole earth quaked at love's display. Three days silent in the ground, his body born for heaven's crown. And on that bright and glorious day when heaven opened up the grave, he's alive and risen indeed. Praise him for the mercy tree. Death has died. Love has won. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ has overcome. He has risen from the dead. One day soon we'll see his face and every tear he'll wipe away. No more pain or suffering. Oh, praise him for the mercy tree. Death has died, love has won, on a hill called Calvary. That song was written by a woman who is a committed atheist, who upon hearing the gospel by someone who believed that a Samaritan could be saved too, humbled herself before the Lord, and now calls him her Savior, and wrote such a beautiful song. The problem of mercy is that disciples of Christ continue to this day, you and I continue to this day to be both poor recipients of mercy and poor dispensers of it alike. We're really bad at mercy. We, like the sons of thunder, have forgotten from where we have come and we have assumed a throne of judgment, forgetting the great sins that we commit Not merely that we committed, but that we also daily commit. We would 
We would have God to send fire down upon the heads of others while he draws near to us. And we have thunderous zeal for our own self-righteousness because we have forgotten that there was a cross. We have forgotten that we are on the road with Jesus. And he's leading us in a growing band of disciples through places like Samaria that are ripe for mercy's harvest. This lesson of mercy for James, like the lesson of forgiveness for Peter, is foundational. It's foundational for the disciples. It's foundational for our identity. It's foundational for our attitude, our disposition towards others, our countenance and display of Christ. It's foundational for our evangelism, that we understand mercy. No disciple will ever speak of saving grace who believes that others should receive the fiery wrath of God. Meanwhile, while he skirts around Samaria, forgiveness, mercy, they are in the lesson of Discipleship 101 in their shoes. What James saw of Christ, we must see for ourselves too. It's a crown of mercy. It's a throne of mercy that we need. Will you pray with me?